uh, Reason's core micro. It's, this is typically an attempt by economics to ape the physical sciences to, to uh, borrow the prestige of physics. Uh, where the term micro means something really completely different than it means here. What, what micro means in economics is dealing with the individual, <clears throat> with uh, the individual level, individual action, the market, prices. Uh, quiet, please. Dealing with demand, supply, uh, production, uh, the oil, the oil price thing, which is happening, so forth. So these these things are part of micro. Thank <clears throat> you. And uh, macro, which is the other basic course, deals with a larger picture, sort of like inflation, unemployment, business cycles. That's where everybody forecasts. Economists forecast every year and always get always get it wrong. Forecasts are always way off the beam. That's macro. Micro is in pretty good shape. I think it's basically a, a sort of a consensus about micro. Macro is pretty screwed up, <clears throat> and uh, for good reason. But at any rate, uh, this is the we're dealing now with much with the, with sort of the basic economics. The macro is is uh, even good. Macro is essentially based on micro. So it's best to take micro first if you're taking both courses. You can take both, make either sequence. I think this is a better. Better to start with this. <clears throat> uh, all right, we deal in economics with, we don't deal only with numbers and graphs. That's only, as usually happens with uh, in economics, the graphs came in and the numbers came in in order to simplify, to present a simple uh, basis of, of the theory. And what usually what usually happens is the everybody got enchanted with a graph. They started the graphs that came in the end of themselves. And economists began to lose sight of the actual of the actual people and what's going on in the world. <clears throat> so that's um, that's been a danger in the higher stratospheric reaches of economic theory. Uh, <clears throat> at any rate, what we're dealing with economics really deals with is the individual, and starts with a very simple fact, simple basic fact, namely everybody, every individual has goals which they're trying to achieve. He or she is trying to achieve. The goal can be a very simple one, like eating a ham sandwich uh, in one hour. <clears throat> Simple short-run goal. It can be a much longer goal. Graduating from poly, or getting a job in electrical engineering, or whatever. <clears throat> uh, there's a whole <clears throat> structure of goals. And in order to achieve these goals, you have to employ resources of some sort. You have to do something. <clears throat> um, in other words, by, by having goals of a sort, you're assuming that people uh, can achieve them. At least can, can take measures, can take steps to buy a ham sandwich, or to find a newspaper, or to buy a hi-fi set, or whatever. <clears throat> Or to graduate from poly, these things are uh, at least uh, presumably accomplishable. <clears throat> so, in other words, everybody has an objective, has, diff has different objectives in mind, and has an idea of how to arrive at, how to go about it. And uh, that's basically the, the, the source of economic theory. Uh, economic theory is a deductive system built on this and this basic fact, what economists call action. In other words, the fact that people act in the world to accomplish something. And I say the accomplishment can be very short run, it can be very simple, it can be uh, eating a sandwich, or it can be very comp complex, a whole series of things. It doesn't matter. From the point of view of economics, it doesn't matter what the goals are. That's up to some other discipline to worry about. What we deal with is the, the fact that people employ resources of different sorts to arrive at goals. Okay, this is an action as you have goals, <clears throat> and you've got resources to try to achieve them. <clears throat> uh, this is also called a means-ends relationship. You have an end or an objective, and you employ a mean, different means to try to achieve it. Um, okay, what are some of the resources? Well, in first place, um, economists like to deal with what's known as Crusoe economics. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, if you're familiar with this little uh, tale, of, uh, it's also been in the movies, where the guy shipwrecked and he winds up on an island somewhere in the South Pacific, and he's got no resources except himself. And he's trying to first he has, he has different goals he has to achieve. One, he's got to keep alive, seems to be the basic, before he can accomplish anything else. Uh, so in the case of Crusoe, <clears throat> the reason why we like to use this is it's a stark situation where we can isolate one person. Uh, you can take one person vis-a-vis -vis nature and bring in other people later on. That's how, that's how you sort of deal in economics. You take one simple situation, and you add on a more complex situation after you analyze it. <clears throat> so if you have Crusoe, okay, he's got different goals or objectives. Food, okay, and uh, he looks around 
fast to find out what the sources of food are. Uh, shelter and clothing or whatever. So that's okay, so this is yeah, some of his priorities. And he lists them in a certain rank. We'll get to that a little later on. Uh, what are his means? What are his resources that he has? Well, he looks around the inventory. First of all, he's got himself. Yeah, he's got his own energy, his own personal energy. So, uh, <coughs> resources, energy, and, uh, and he's got his own technological knowledge. He just, he's, presuming he doesn't have amnesia, he knows how to fish or you know, chop down trees or build a bow and arrow or something like that. Technology is low tech. High tech doesn't make it on Desert Island or Kuso Island. Uh, knowledge about, unfortunately, knowledge about how to construct a computer or something, how to use it, is not going to do much good. But low tech, but if tech nevertheless, lower, low, even if it's low tech, it's an important tech for him, namely how to fish and how to hunt and that sort of stuff. So how to construct a log cabin. <clears throat> so, all right, so he's got technological ideas. Or recipes can be called. <clears throat> Technological knowledge. <coughs> knowledge. Uh, and he's also got different natural resources. He's got, looks around, he's got, let's say, there's trees or there's fish in the, in the stream or whatever. Looks around, finds out what the natural resources are. And that's what he starts off with. Starts off with technological ideas, his own personal energy, and natural resources. And this is basically what we have in the world in general. The world starts off, you look at the caveman, caveman start off with just a person, some kind of ideas of what to do, and, and resources, a okay, person's resources. Um, now economics really begins as a, as a discipline, early 19th century, or late 18th century England, Britain, <clears throat> and uh, so the language, we're sort of stuck with a, with a language, a lot of the language, the concepts, uh, we're still stuck with. Even though they're kind of, the words are a little different now, we have to adjust to that. You can't change the words. You just have to explain why it's a little different. The same, similarly here, personal energy used to be called labor. So this is called labor, labor energy. And nowadays when we think of labor, we think of a proletariat type. Since Marx, Marxism came in, we think of a laborer or somebody who's working a steel mill or something like that. And this, this concept of labor means anybody who works in production. We haven't defined production. It means doing something in the, in the world to transform it into consumer goods. We'll get to, that, get to that later. So everybody is a laborer in that sense. Anybody who works in production is a laborer in this sense. The president of General Motors is a laborer, just as the guy who works on the assembly line. Yes, that's, who isn't a laborer? Well, people who are clipping coupons. doesn't mean they're not important, just they're not laborers. As people who are stockholders, per se, or bondholders, are not engaging in personal labor in the plant, <coughs> so, or in production. So this is less labor, labor and personal, which really means here personal energy. Uh, natural resources, <coughs> since it was 18th century agricultural Britain, is called land. The famous land and labor. So we use the word land, so we use, we're stuck with the word land, we're stuck with the word labor, but again, it doesn't quite mean what we think of in common sense terms now. Land and economics means Ground land it means natural resources. It means the, doesn't mean, in other words, this building here. We think of land. We think of the building. Brooklyn Poly, Poly excuse me, Polytechnic University. My God, we behind on this dazzling name changes. We don't. We think of it. <laughs> we think of it as the building here. We don't. But land is, is considered in economics only the ground underneath. In other words, natural nature made and not man made. <clears throat> uh, so land also includes fish, whose natural resources on the water it includes water. See, when they were making up economics in the 18th century, water was not considered a scarce resource. It was just super, considered super abundant. They had plenty of, plenty, of wet, plenty of wet agriculture. So <coughs> nowadays we, we know better. Water is scarce. So water is a scarce resource. Fish are a scarce resource. Also other things like TV channels, frequencies, things like that, are also land in, this, in that sense. Those are natural resources. Space is land. Uh, ocean, the ocean is land. Lots of resources in the ocean which haven't been tapped yet. Uh, the continental shelf. <coughs> There's minerals underneath in the bottom of the, of the sea and things like that. This is all land in the, in the quote, quote unquote. In other words, natural resources. Okay. So land means natural resources. Labor means personal energy. <coughs> okay, what else is there? What else is everything else? Everything else, in other words, people, man, uh, take 
financial resources and transform them in order to get to what? The consumer goods, so they can use it. In other words, Crusoe's got to eat. He's got to take the resources. He's got to shoot the, shoot the deer or catch the fish and eat it. So he's got, he's got to do various things to get the consumer goods. The objective of, doing, of working hard to do this is to wind up the consumer goods, wind up with food, shelter, clothing, hi-fi sets or whatever, or, or you know, music coming out of the stereo. These things are consumer goods. This is what I use as an end of themselves. This is what the objective of action is all about. <clears throat> so consumer goods are coming off the assembly line, so to speak. Everything else, which is not labor or natural resources, is called capital. <clears throat> Of capital goods. We'll, we'll get to this a little bit in Miller, but this is all so now it's capital consists of everything used in production, which is not land or labor. So it means it could be the net, fishing net to use for fishing, poles to fish, bow and arrow to hunt, uh, every anything like that. Anything right now it can be it can be roads, trucks, tires on a truck. Uh, <coughs> all these things are uh, factories, of course, goods and process, all these things are part of capital until you get to the consumer. For example, uh, if you just ate a ham sandwich with Michelangelo, let's take that, one of my favorite examples. Uh, that was a, the end process of millions of people uh, engaged in production. What, by the way, what is production? Production is a transformation, the use of labor, working on natural resources to transform into capital, different types of capital, but finally you wind up with consumer goods. So production is this whole process of starting with land and labor and winding up with consumer goods. There's different degrees of capital, different stages. So for example, let's take a ham sandwich and Michael Reinsdorf. You have an enormous amount of cooperating factors in there, factors of production. Got Okay. It's a whole tree, production tree or a structure of production, starting with a farmer and mi mineral mi miner and so forth, going for about 30 years at least until you get to the ham sandwich. Ham sandwich. Okay, what do you got? You got different ingredients going into it. To produce the ham sandwich, to sell it to the consumer, you got to have the ham, of course. You have to have the bread, the hero, whatever. You have to have, if you have cheese, all right, you have to have cheese. Butter and uh, yeah, tomato. <laughs> right, less. <laughs> okay, all these things got to be brought together on the retail level, and you have to have workers doing. You? you have to have the workers and aprons and counters. Okay, counters. <laughs> yeah, you got to have counters and refrigerated units. You know, all that sort of stuff. And chairs. Somebody's got to produce the chair so you can sit on it. So all these things are. Uh, <laughs> uh, all these things have to be produced. They all have to be combined to get to the one, one ham sandwich. They have to be produced for many years. You've got to have somebody working at... Uh, the ham goes back... Let's see. Uh, it goes to a... It's sold by a wholesaler, probably, of, of, of the Brooklyn Ham Division or whatever, the Brooklyn Armor Ham Unit or something like that. And they get it from a jobber, which is like Eastern Seaboard. And they get it from Chicago. You get the meat packer. The meet packer gets it from the meat, meat packer to... You know, package the meat and the slaughterhouses. Slaughterhouse gets it from a farmer, raises the pigs. They have to have stockyards, they have to have trucks in every step of the way, and gasoline for the trucks, and tires, and stuff going and metal going, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, on and on and on. This is only for the, for the ham. Okay? You have to, the, ham, the pigs have to eat, and they grow, uh, usually eat corn. The corn has to be grown, and on and on and on. With machinery every step of the way, and this is, and, and all this I say is just from one unit. And it takes 30 years, it involves millions of people for one lousy ham sandwich. It's incredible. And every country in the world probably is involved in this. People growing ebony for pencils in Africa and so forth and so on, which is then, because you have to have paper, you have to have pencils to record all this stuff and figure out what's going on. All these, all these things, every step of the way, you have to have land, <coughs> at least to grow on, you have to have different kinds of capital, and you have to have labor. Okay, and all these things are involved in this, in each step of the way, each unit. Somebody's got to put it all together. The interesting thing is it works at every step of the way. One of the amazing things about the market, the free market economy, is it all works. You don't have to have, for me to get a ham sandwich right today, you don't have to have some world planning board, eight guys on a planning board sitting around 30 years ago, 
I say, I was seeing on January 20, what is it, 26 today? <laughs> 28th, January 28th, 1986, we, got, we have to get Roth on a ham sandwich. Therefore, you got to go, go raise the pigs. You over there go raise the corn and so forth. got to get Roth on a ham sandwich. Nobody does that. There's no world planning board trying to figure this out. If there were, we'd all be in big trouble. And yet it all works. At every step of the way, all these things happen at every step of the way with no shortages and no surpluses. Everything fits together like a lattice work structure. The market economy is like a lattice work, like a spider web when we look at sort of that sort of derogatory metaphor. It's like a lattice work, like a lace thing. It all fits in. How, how come it all fits in? What? There's no magic, there's no planning board that fits it all in. The market itself does it. And really what microeconomics is is to study how the thing works and what happens when the government intervenes in the process and screws everything up. That's basically what microeconomics is all about. <coughs> uh, <coughs> excuse me. Okay, the, the, big, the big factor here, which is true both in Crusoe and for us, <coughs> the big factor is this. We contrast the world, whether we're talking about the caveman or Crusoe right now, with what I call the Garden of Eden model. Now, some people believe, some of us believe that mankind used to be in the Garden of Eden and was then kicked out for various transgressions. Whether it's true or not, it's an interesting model to look at. In the Garden of Eden, everybody gets unlimited, satisfies his or her wants in unlimited fashion, with no work, no nothing. You snap your fingers and Pepsi is trickling down your throat. Right? <laughs> Nobody has to work at it. Nobody has to produce it. Why is that? Because there's no scarcity. There's no nut. No scarcity. If there's no scarcity, you don't need private property. You don't need labor. You don't have to work. That's it. Uh, unfortunately, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden if it ever existed. And so in the world as it exists, uh, in human history, there's tremendous scarcity. You don't have unlimited abundance of all factors of production, all goods. The Garden of Eden model is unlimited abundance of all desired for good. If somebody wants to hear a symphony, they snap their fingers and get it right, right there. And we, don't, we haven't got that. We have to have somebody working to produce it. And so we have the ever-present fact of scarcity. Scarcity meaning scarcity of resources relative to the goals that we have and we've got to try to accomplish. Scarcity of resources. Scarcity, well, we'll see in a minute what the resources are. Obviously, it's scarcity of land, labor, and capital. One thing. It's all scarce. Scarce in the sense that we... We'd like to have more of it. If we had more of it, we could produce more, consume more. We can have higher standards of living. <coughs> if we had no scarcity, if everything was super abundant, and we wouldn't have to work, we'd have to worry about anything, we'd just have Pepsi trickling down our throat, just like that, or whatever equivalent. <laughs> okay. um, so uh, <coughs> what happens is the caveman has everything is extremely scarce. They're in bad shape. Crusoe is in bad shape. Everything is very scarce. He's going to die tomorrow. He doesn't get food immediately. We are in better shape. We have less scarcity than we had in the human races. The progress of the human race, the progress of civilization, is essentially the alleviating of scarcity. Scarcity is still there, just with a lot less of it. A lot further from the brink than Crusoe was or the caveman was. <coughs> we got a lot more <coughs> fat, so to speak. Got a higher living standard. So the process of the, the progress of the human race is essentially the, the progressive diminution or alleviation of scarcity. Scarcity is still there, but there's just a lot less of it. Now, about an intellectual, intellectual world, there's sort of fashions. One, one, you know, one of the few good things about being at my advanced age is I've seen them all. I've seen them, all the fashions come and go. Every five years, some new nut comes on with a new theory, and everybody adopts it for about five years and forgets it five years later. One nutty theory that came in about 1970 <clears throat> was there's no more scarcity. Economics, microeconomics might have been correct, the old days when there was scarcity, now there's no scarcity. It's called, we live, they, they said, in a post-scarcity world. A post-scarcity world. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't know what it means. What it really would mean is we're back in the Garden of Eden. Nobody has to work, nobody has to produce, no nothing. Uh, obviously, we're not in that situation. I remember I had a debate with some turkey... Uh, I think, it was, I think it was American University in Washington, which is an odd place anyway. And uh, I was on the question about, do we live in a post-scarcity world? He was maintaining we live, we live in a post-scarcity world, therefore we don't have to work, and therefore, I don't know what therefore was, they're all very murky. And my question was, if that were really true, if Professor so-and-so had not, he said he, his, his conclusion was we should, we should therefore have socialism. I'm not sure why that was the conclusion. <clears throat> Presumably, if there's no scarcity, you can have anything you want. Deuces are wild. So I said, well, if it's true that Professor so-and-so is right that we live in a post-scarcity world, why, does he, why doesn't he tear up his paycheck? Uh, why, does he, why doesn't he at least tear up his raises that he gets every year? 
And his answer was interesting. Answer was, that's because I too have been sucked into the capitalist ethos. And uh, so it's interesting, interesting reply. <laughs> In other words, he's also saying, he's admitting there is scarcity, and he's trying to alleviate it as much as every, anybody else. So at any rate, uh, that has been forgotten. I haven't heard that for a long time now about post-scarcity. As a matter of fact, the next fashion that came in slight, shortly after that, I think by seven, 1975, my God, everything is scarce. We're going to run out of resources. That was, a, that, was, that was a big gimmick for about five years. From 1975 to 1980, the same jerks who are claiming we live in a post-scarcity world, and therefore we should have socialism. I don't know how the therefore comes in. I can never figure that out. But anyway, uh, and now, then said from 75 to 80, we live, all resources are running out. Oil is going to run out. Energy is going to run out. Forests are going to run out. Therefore, we should have socialism. Why that? That's also, the conclusion is always the same, you understand? <laughs> There's never any connection, but at any rate, uh, <coughs> then you have to run around refuting that. And it turned out by 1980 they shut up after that because there's plenty of resources. I mean, there is scarcity, like there always has been, but there's, there's plenty of resources. Nothing ran out. We'll get into the oil caper, by the way, uh, short, you know, fairly shortly. We'll get into the whole energy crisis, the alleged energy crisis and all the rest of it. It's an interesting example of this, this stuff in action. At any rate, that's the... Uh, uh, so we have an ever-present scarcity of resources. The people left, therefore have to allocate their resources to the highest values, to their highest values, and try to and try to make sure that they don't waste them. In the sense that they make sure they don't spend their time or their energy or whatever in stuff they'll regret. Figure that they really should have spent on something else. So this sort of so these resources, by the way, also include time. Time is a resource. It's scarce, as you all know. Um, what are you going to do tonight? What are you going to do for the a block of hours from, say, 8 to 11 or something. You, do, there's lots, you have all sorts of choices. Every person has a concrete choice. You can go to a whole bunch of movies, possible, not, not all at once. One of them, you can see people, you can do homework. About, you know, each of you could probably get a list right now of seven or eight things you could do tonight. How do you decide what you do? Well, you decide on great basis your own personal values, which you think is most important, or whatever, which you think is more fun. Whatever it is, you decide one way or the other. It doesn't have to be a excruciating decision. You have, to, you have to spend 10 hours on it. You can do it, make a snap judgment. Economists, again, don't care about how long it takes to make a decision. That's not our bag. That's the psychologist or whatever. What we're interested in is the fact everybody's got scarce resources. Everybody's got goals they're trying to achieve. Scarce time, scarce money, scarce labor, scarce capital, whatever. And they're trying to allocate as best they can to have the best possible advantage. If you go to a, if you go to, if you pick a movie, a certain movie, movie X, and you go to that, it turns out it was a bummer. Then you've wasted, you think, damn it, I've wasted time and money. You wasted the money going to it. You wasted the time. You could have gone to something else. You could have done something else. So you're looking back. You figured you took a loss, a psychic loss on it. Okay. The other half was a good movie. You figured it's a psychic gain. You benefited from this. It was good stuff. So once, so you're looking. Everybody looks at the prospect that he tries to do the best he can or she can. Looking back, you say, well, gee, that was good or it was a bad action or a good action. I, I was, it was too costly, or was, was a loser. And you, you figure out the next time you won't go to this director, a movie with this director in it, a movie with this particular actor in it, because often the same actor usually appears in the same kind of movies. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so you learn from experience, hopefully, and you go to, you do better next time. We presumably do better next time. Okay, <clears throat> that's enough for today. The Miller, and you'll get the syllabus. And you know, I hope we'll get a bigger room out of this thing. No, I don't know. The, uh, Talking about Crusoe and also about life in general, and shifting back and forth between them, we have uh, we have personal energy, which is cool labor. You've got natural resources. land, and everything else which are called capital goods. Everything else which transforms, where labor works on natural resources, transforms them, finally getting to consumer goods. So this is capital goods, this is capital. These are the famous, this is the famous triad of uh, labor, land, and capital. <coughs> the, uh, <coughs> as the economy develops and progresses, more and more capital is built up. With Crusoe, you have all he's got is a bow and arrow or something. Uh, but we've got an enormous amount of capital equipment, factories, raw material, mines, roads, tires, everything else. 
designed to take natural resources and transform them, move them over vast spaces, and finally get to the consumers and sell on consumer goods. So that's the uh, that's the how the, the whole economy is oriented. <clears throat> Another thing about human action in general, uh, about Crusoe and about life in general, is that it takes time. Everything takes time. Some things take less time. Others things others take more time. Um, and so, and everybody prefers having stuff now than waiting for it. So anybody is, uh, has a choice of, aside from price changes, human prices remain this, about the same, you got a million dollars. Somebody said, I'll, give you, I'll either give you a million dollars now or, or ten years from now. What are you going to pick? Obviously, you'll pick now. So <clears throat> this is called a time preference. People prefer getting stuff, achieving their goals earlier than later. <clears throat> um, and this confl conflicts in a sense. It has to be balanced against the fact people prefer getting stuff now than later. But the more they save and invest, the more stuff, the higher their standard of living will be in the future. So they have to choose between eating, consuming now, and, or saving up now, consuming more later. Those are the, that's the basics. We'll get to that more later on. <clears throat> but anyway, these are the things take time, and also the time preference. Action takes time. And also, action is risky. There's uncertainty of the world. And uh, the function of the entrepreneur is to meet that uncertainty, to bear the risk of uncertainty. So Crusoe is an entrepreneur. He's, he's trying, he hopes he can catch fish, or he hopes he can build a cabin, things like that. Entrepreneurs right now are people, everybody's an entrepreneur. If you, if you become a mechanical engineer, you hope or expect that you have to be able to get a good job in it, stuff like that. On the other hand, other, more entrepreneurial are the capitalists who invest a lot of money in, this, in certain processes and hope they'll make money out of it. So these, this is called entrepreneurship. There's no good English word for it. It's a French word. It's now been incorporated in the English language. Adam Smith used the word undertaker. That didn't, didn't fly, obviously, for obvious reasons. So entrepreneur is it. <clears throat> Which essentially means a risk-taking capitalist, or the person who invests capital in some enterprise and hopes to make, hopes to make profits and not suffer losses. We'll get to them later on, too. Right now, we're sort of surveying the basic situation in the economy. <clears throat> um, everybody, Crusoe and us, have goals which we want to meet and which we prioritize. It's a terrible word, anyway. We, we, we put in terms of priorities, and we, we list them in ranked order. I mentioned just before the end of last hour that you have to choose what to do for three hours tonight. Let's say you could choose between four or five or eight different choices. And you pick what's your best choice, your most valuable choice, what you think is going to be best. You go to movie A, you, you visit people, whatever. <clears throat> so everybody's got to rank preferences of choices. Say movie A, uh, party, party A, movie B, whatever. Everybody's got different rankings and different choices, obviously. Okay. Uh, so homework. <laughs> <laughs> right, usually low on the rank, most people. Some people, of course, are uh, sports, <laughs> as it's called biology, and uh, like homework. <laughs> okay, so anyway, there's all these different visiting people or whatever. Okay, so this is so something you pick what's your highest value, and you hope that's going to be correct. Um, so this is, this is called, I call it a value scale, but it now has... Uh, it's been given the name in economics of utility, <clears throat> and it's, it's a little unfortunate again because utility often means uh, useful in such an objectively useful. But in economics, it means subject, purely subjective valuation. It could be useful, or couldn't it, or, or not? If people think that it is, that's, that's all we care about in, this, in economics. In other words, uh, a lot of left-wing intellectuals hate cosmetics. They think it's evil thing for a lot of women to use cosmetics. Well, most women don't agree with it, so they, they like cosmetics. And their value scale, cosmetics rank pretty high. Okay, so this is, so this is purely subjective. It's to the preferences and valuations of each individual. And, um, and this is the, the utility scale, which is a ranked order. Now, the thing about utility scales is that it's, they're ordinal, they're ranking. <clears throat> Unfortunately, this is my first big disagreement with the text, every textbook that I know of. Uh, the textbooks will give lip service to this. They'll say, yes, it's ordinal. All of a sudden, they start talking about utils. Uh, there's margin as utils. This is three utils. That's two utils. Util being a unit of utility. Okay? 
and they add it up and they multiply it. There's no util. There's no such thing as a util. Who's, who's ever seen a util? Uh, absurd. If you, if you want to choose between going to movie A and movie B, you don't say to yourself, let's see, I, I value this at eight utils. Right? <laughs> so forget it. Forget util. It's my first injunction. Uh, it's a purely ordinal ranking order. The mathematics often called lexicographic. In other words, it's like, instead of saying, we could say we rank it one, two, three, four, but it should be ranked as lexicographically. In other words, A, B, C, D. See, the use of the number sucks economists into thinking that you can do something. We can add, subtract. If you use A and B and C, nobody would say C is twice B. Okay? So this is the... Um, anyway, this is unfortunately one of these the sociological phenomenon here which we're dealing with. So there's no such thing as usual. It's strictly ordinal. It's strictly ranking and rank order. <clears throat> okay, but, so this is... Uh, we'll now get to the uh, first important law of economics. All of this, all the laws of economics, I want to say one thing, they're qualitative and not quantitative. See, one of the problems with economists is they're trying, they take a qualitative science, which is really what this is, and try to convert it to being quantitative because they can predict precisely what's going to happen. They can't do that. The predictions are always wrong. When they make quantitative predictions, they always flop. And what they do is they keep flopping. They keep saying, well, we have to change the model. We, we, didn't, we, we missed out on X, Y, Z. They change it and they still flop. This has been going on now for 20 years. Uh, some economists are beginning to realize, it's also customers of economists, people who buy forecasts, like corporations and so forth, beginning to realize this thing is a, this whole thing is a, is a scam. And beginning to realize, you know, I'm saying something up here. Anyway, one of the reasons why they haven't, the customers of e economic forecasters haven't turned on them before this, is again, it's an important economic lesson here, is because it's a tax write-off. You see, it's considered a legitimate expense to hire economists. Everybody hires economists to tell you what the unemployment rate's going to be next year. And if it's, if it's a lousy unemployment rate, so what? You've hired a top economist, everybody else missed the forecast, and your expenses can be written off as a legitimate tax write-off of one sort or another. <clears throat> At any rate, they're even if they're catching on in any case. So we have a qualitative discipline. <clears throat> we can, we, there are laws about tendency and direction, not about quantitative. Uh, you can, there are only hunches about quantitative. Okay, so we have, let's get back to Crusoe. We have, uh, you have a, uh, going to take, <clears throat> make a couple of the simplifying assumptions here. He's got a bunch of logs. He's chopped down a bunch of logs and he has it. And uh, we're going to assume that one log or one set of logs can be used for each of three or four different uses, okay? which they can. It's just we're going to assume it's about the same amount. Uh, so you can take these logs and say, okay, what's, what's my first priority? He's got, he's got an ordinal value scale, ordinal utility scale. Well, the top priority is food for tonight. To cook, to make the logs for a fire, to cook tonight's meat. Okay? You have a question or a point? Okay. Um, fire for tonight seems to be a top priority. I think in the case of Crusoe, we have we can come to much more agreement than we would about which movie to go to. He's down to basics here. He's down to survival. Okay, so fire for tonight. That's, that's the first priority. Second priority might be. Um, Fire for tomorrow night to keep it for tomorrow. Okay, so you don't have to. Well, why not? <laughs> so, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> He's got a chair with him. If you bring your own chair, I can't cancel it. It's only when the number of people is, is more than the number of chairs. Okay, third priority, let's say, is uh, building a. Uh, not, well, building a shelter, okay, building, building a, a cabin, or building an extension of a cabin, whatever. Well, okay, we're building an extension. Who knows? His fourth priority might be setting a perimeter of logs around the around his little camp so wolves won't come in or whatever. So you have a perimeter. And fifth priority uh, is building a boardwalk down to the beach. What the hell? I mean, obviously, a real luxury item because his toes won't his toes won't be full of sand. I don't know if you saw those. There was a Crusoe-type picture called a Swiss Family Robert, a movie called a Swiss Family Robinson about 40 years ago. And they had this thing. They start off with nothing. And, you know, after two years there, they've got a whole, they got boardwalks. they got a, a whole bunch of uh, capital. Yeah, right. Boardwalk. Okay. I'm not sure they've got VCRs yet. Anyway, that's... <laughs> All right. So, um, now, he has these logs. Assume each one log or one set of logs can perform each of these different functions. Now, the point is... <clears throat> If he has a supply, a supply, by the way, is 
defined as uh, an amount of n, of n units okay, of a homogeneous good, meaning that each, each unit is the same as any other, other unit. So what you're dealing with is the same log or the same horse or whatever thing, you know, for more or less practical purposes, they're interchangeable. Um, so you're not dealing with two totally different types of wood or something like that. <clears throat> so it supplies n units of a homogeneous good. If he's got one log, that's all he's got, or one unit, he will, now we know, he will use, he will satisfy the top priority and let the others go, go by the board. He will not satisfy priority three and forget about one. Okay? In other words, he will pick his highest priority. If he has two logs, he'll pick his first two priorities, and so forth. Well, looking at it another way, supposing he's got three logs and he loses one, a wave comes and washes it away or something like that, he will give up his lowest priority that he's already could have satisfied, give up priority three. He won't, he won't forget about food tonight, because <coughs> that's his top priority. He will rearrange the logs so as to knock out three and leave one and two. If, on the other hand, he's got five logs and he loses one, he'll give up the boardwalk. He's not going to give up the really tough stuff. So in other words, now what do we deduce from this? Deduce that uh, the greater the supply of a good, okay, the greater the number of units that a person has, <coughs> the lower the value of the ranking of each unit. Read this. Lower the value of each unit. So, <clears throat> the more more units he's got, he's got if he's got the value now is how much he's willing to give up. That was the ranking of how much he loses if he loses one one unit. If he's got a supply of three units and loses one, the value of each unit is number three or third or C or whatever you want to call it. If he's got five units. The value of each unit is five, a less a lesser value. Because if he loses one, he gives up less. He's got one unit, it's a much higher value. So the, the greater the supply, the lower the value of each unit. <clears throat> okay. uh, this is called, technically, the lower the marginal utility. Because utility means value, marginal means each unit. This is highfalutin jargon again, but it's basically that's what it means. So marginal means the next unit is one log, one, one pound of butter, whatever the unit happens to be. <clears throat> So, the greater the supply, the lower the value of each unit, and the lower the margin of utility. Vice versa. In almost every law in economics, you can just switch it around. Okay? Which is simply logic, the logic of the situation. The lower the, the, lower the supply of a good, The greater the value of each unit. <clears throat> That's saying the same thing, it's the other side of the coin. <clears throat> this is economics, what re economics really is, is a just simple spelling out the logic of the of action. <clears throat> uh, the greater the value of each unit. Alright. <clears throat> so, this is called, there's a name for this, the law of diminishing marginal utility. Right. Fancy name for it. <clears throat> okay, so uh, that means the, the greater, it's really the same, same thing, the greater the supply the lower the value of each unit. <clears throat> and we can put this in a little diagram. Oh, the diagrams are supposed to be used for an economics to make it clearer. Unfortunately, in most cases, they're used to make it more complicated. Anyway, if you take, if you put margin utility or value of each unit on the y-axis, and all economic diagrams in microeconomics, the y-axis has either margin utility or price or something like that. The x-axis is quantity of, of whatever. Okay, in this case, we have quantity of a good. This is zero for both. Um, and so what they're saying is, as you increase the quantity of units, one, two, three, four, whatever, 
the margin utility keeps dropping. And we don't know what the height is because it's ordinal. And we just simply say, probably even shouldn't connect the, the dots. But anyway, we know it's falling. Okay, so that's. <clears throat> so that means that if you just see, obviously, the greater the number of units, the lower the value of each unit. The lesser number of units, the greater the value of each unit. So this is supposed to be a way of showing this. Pay no attention to the actual distances or things like that because at this point. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> okay, so from this we, uh, this is the basis of what's known as the law of demand or analysis of consumer demand on the market. Uh, the, um, how much will people pay for uh, uh, products? Obviously, if you have, well, if you have one chess set, you're not going to pay as much for a second one, presumably. Or, uh, given the given the kind of chess set, uh, so uh, let me go on to the next next step. <clears throat> the next question is how much uh, the law the law of demand, which is based on law of the machine market utility, is. Trying to figure out what consumer behavior, how much people will spend on different, how much people buy different goods, given their different prices. In other words, let's take Wonder Bread, one of my favorite consumer purchases. Right? Uh, I like Wonder Bread. I buy lots of Wonder Bread. However, if the price of Wonder Bread suddenly magically, let's say some, some guy, Mr. The Wonder Company, whatever the name of the company is, uh, <laughs> Mr. Wonder sells out or whatever, some other guy comes, the other guy's a nut. And the other guy says, I think Wonder Bread is so great, a consumer should have to pay a lot of money for it. It's really worth 10 bucks a loaf. Right? So he issues an order to all the Wonder Bread people. From now on, you only sell the thing for 10 bucks a loaf. Now, of course, about a buck a loaf. So what happens? Well, what happens is this. You have, now you have the basic diagram. You have price on the y-axis, price of the good. What does price mean? Price actually means how much uh, you're willing to pay or what, what the... How many, what the different terms of the exchange are. In other words, uh, this is the um, Crusoe and Friday. They've got, let's say they Crusoe fishes and Friday hunts. And so Crusoe has a, has a lot of fish and he, they decide on one barrel of fish per, one, per two pounds of meat or whatever it is. Okay? And they decide that that's a pure bargaining situation. When they do that, the price is how much you get, how much you, in terms of exchange, the quantity of one exchange, one good in exchange, is compared to the other good. In other words, the, the, the fish price of meat is one barrel of fish per half pound of meat in this situation. And, uh, or per pound of meat. No, not per half pound of meat. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, one pound of meat. <coughs> Two pounds of meat per, per one barrel of fish, it's half a pound of meat per barrel. Uh, so you can, in this case, the price is one fish in terms of meat. When we have money, and we have in macro, we deal with how money, how you get the money, but it, it, things get very simplified, and everything's in terms of money price, whatever the money is, ounces of gold or dollars or whatever. So the exchange is between the money and the specific good. Uh, so here you have a situation, let's say with, let's say with Wonder Bread, uh, if the price if they insist on $10 a loaf, very few people will buy it. Let's say this, this is $1 a loaf, and you have this many people. This is, on this axis, you have quantity. Again, quantity purchased. So I don't know how many loaves of Wonder Bread are sold in the United States or New York at any given time. Uh, let's say 100,000 loaves. I don't know. This is good, good as any other. 100,000 loaves, say, in New York in a week or whatever. Uh, so the quantity is 100,000. The price is a dollar a loaf. So if he suddenly insists, if Mr. Wonder suddenly insists on $10 a loaf, very few people will buy it. The only people who will buy it are very wealthy Wonder Bread freaks. <laughs> if David Rockefeller loves Wonder Bread, which is probably, <laughs> probably dubious, he might shell out a lot of money. Very, other, very few of the rest of us will join him. <laughs> so the, the quantity suddenly plummets. Right? So let's say this, many, this much will be purchased. And... Uh, Okay, so he, he will go bankrupt pretty early, and he will lose his, he keeps on with us, he will lose his fortune, whatever it is, pretty quickly. Uh, 
On the other hand, supposing he's succeeded by another nut, an opposite kind of nut, uh, who says, well, I think that the, the Wonder Bread is so great that people, the whole, every, every person in the world is able to afford Wonder Bread. I'm going to sell it for a nickel a loaf. Right? Of course, he loses a lot of money per loaf, but he didn't see, you know, he's, he's also crazy. So anyway, and a nickel a loaf, lots of people buy it. You hear about a nickel a loaf, hey, Wonder Bread's a nickel a loaf. You stop buying Pepperidge Farms or or tasty or whatever, you rush to buy one, what the hell, you might not like it too well, but a nickel a loaf is worth it. You get a huge, you know, two million loaves of soap. <laughs> if, there's, if there's that much soap produced. You get something like this, all right? Now this is the, this is the great law of demand. And the law of demand, which is related to the fact of, related to two things, one is the, March, diminishing margin utility to keep increasing the supply, and two is the fact that some people are poorer than others and they can't afford to spend a lot of money on, on one specific item. <clears throat> so at any rate, you wind up with a law of demand, which is very simple, and, but a very important, probably the most important single law in microeconomics, namely, the lower the price, the more will be purchased. <clears throat> more the consumers will purchase. <clears throat> lower the price for any item, We don't know how much more. See, that's what we don't know. We know what will be more. That's an absolute law. How much? That's, 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 that depends on the specific item. It depends on the, specific, the people. Uh, it's sort of like applied punches. But we do know, absolutely, the lower the price, the more will be purchased. <clears throat> and of course, this is called a falling demand curve. <clears throat> Uh, we also know, again, conversely, again, there's always the other side of the coin, the higher the price, the less will be purchased. The same, again, saying the same thing. That's the law of demand. Again, as I say, it's saying the same thing. <clears throat> the falling demand curve. And uh, we don't know the shape. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> there are fashions in economics, like everything else. And originally, before, say, 19, I guess the demand curve came in about 1920 or something like that. Yeah? Why is that called falling demand curve? It's falling to the right. That's all. I mean, you're, it's, as, you, as you look at it from left to right, right? Most of us do. We read from left to right. It's falling. Huh? What? No, it's not rising. It's, ah, that, there you've hit it. You've now hit the, the key problem in microeconomics, which I tell students all the time is a key problem every year, and they always get it, half of, half of you usually get it wrong on exams. Namely, the key difference between quantity demanded and the demand curve. The demand curve is the whole curve, okay? The demand curve is a locus of, given the price, how much will be purchased. Given a high price, given a medium price, low price, and you map out, it depends on the subject of design, you don't know exactly what it is, because it's in the heads of every person. But you do know, that the lower the price, the more will be demanded. Okay? So this gives you a demand curve. So that means if you go down the curve, the price is lower, there'll be greater, higher quantity demanded. Okay? But the curve as a whole is falling. And the demand curve as a whole is the structure. It depends on how, what people think of Wonder Bread, basically, how much income they've got, and what the price and what they think of Wonder Bread, and, and competing products. What's going on with competing products? Is, with uh, Pepperidge Farm bread, or Tasty Bread, or, or, or Rolls, or whatever. They only think they're competing with Wonder Bread. So this, this determines the demand curve in accordance with the subjective value scales, utility scales of the people. Once given this, this gives you the whole demand curve. And I'll get into this a little bit later, because the point is, you, can't, you, you must never confuse the quantity demanded at each point, which is, let's say this is, okay? in other words, at, at 50 cents a loaf, 200,000 loaves will be demanded, let's say. Okay? That's the quantity demanded at each point. You never confuse that with the entire demand curve, which is the locus of all quantities demanded at every point, at every price. Okay. I should say at each price. <clears throat> Quantity demanded at, any, at a given, any given price. All right. 
You never confuse the quantity of demand at any given price with the demand curve as a whole. Now the point is that the demand curve as a whole cannot change if price changes. That's a key. The reason it can't change, in other words, a falling price will not increase the demand curve, ever. Can't, because the demand curve is defined as response to, to prices, price changes. All right. The one thing which cannot increase the demand curve is a falling price. The one thing which can't lower the demand curve is a rising price, because the whole demand, the whole shape of the demand curve has already been incorporated in the definition of the demand curve, the whole shape of this thing, whole, all the responses to price. So the one thing which can't change the price of the, the curve as a whole is changes in price. And I'll, I'll explain this more, more in, great, in greater detail as we go along and still get it wrong in the test. But anyway, that's, that's, it's not like a, this is like a law of students, okay, over the years. Every economics professor has had the same reaction to it, but I'll, I'll tell you anyway. It's once in a while somebody gets it right. <clears throat> All right, so this is, uh, <clears throat> in 18, from 1920 or so when the demand curve starts until about 1940, 45, it was always the same shape in the textbooks. The shape was of the demand curve. Remember, we don't know the shape. All we know is that it's falling. Price on the y-axis, quantity x-axis. The shape was this. The shape was, was known in mathematics as a rectangular hyperbola. In other words, the area under the curve is the same at every point. Uh, <clears throat> this means that... <clears throat> Let's say um, the curve is based on a schedule, on tables. Price, quantity, purchase. If the price is $10 a loaf, let's say they sell 1,000 1, loaves. So the total revenue, the total revenue taken in by, by the wonder of the, not the, not the net profit, total revenue taken in by the retail stores is price times quantity. Right? Obviously, if you're selling, you charge 10 bucks a loaf, and you sell 1,000 loaves, you're, making 10, you're taking in $10,000. <clears throat> That's total revenue equal price times quantity. Key point. If the uh, if the price goes down to five dollars, let's say they sell twenty thousand loaves, and the total revenue goes up to hundred thousand, and so forth. But the way the, te the textbooks used to write the curve, draw the curves is that the area always remained the same. In other words, the total was always ten thousand or whatever, hundred thousand, whatever. It was adjusted in such a way that the area is always the same. That's the definition of rectangular hyperbola. Finally, by 1943, <clears throat> George Stiegler, later won a Nobel Prize, a young professor, wrote a textbook called The Theory of Price. He said, what a, there's no evidence for this. Why do they draw the curves that way? What is this nonsense? And so we started drawing as a straight line. <clears throat> which at least doesn't commit you to thinking that the area is the same. Okay? There's no evidence for a straight line either. And so sometimes, uh, I think McCloskey's latest book on applied price theory, <clears throat> Sort of a maverick type. Me, he draws the lines as wavy. Well, I suppose, yeah, it could be wavy. It's easier to make it. I, I, I still prefer the, the straight lines, provided that you hold it in your head at all times. It's, it's purely convenience. Doesn't mean a damn thing. Unfortunately, most economists don't hold that in their head. By the time they get to chapter eight or something, they're saying this thing is deeply significant. They start talking about tangencies, as we'll see when you go as you go along, and, and go to all sorts of crazy conclusions based on tangencies which don't exist because there ain't no straight lines. But at any rate, straight lines are at least easier to cope with, and at least doesn't assume you have a, the area remains. There's no reason for the area remains the same. There's no reason why consumers always spend the same amount of money, regardless of price. So, and we'll get back to that too. What happens? The total spending becomes a key thing, a, a property of the demand curve, the only really important property of the demand curve. <clears throat> at any rate, we now have the demand curves with straight lines. And the next thing is dealing with supply. All right, we now have the demand curve, which we know is falling, although we don't know exactly how much. And we have supply. What's supply? Supply, despite the textbooks, uh, you see in this thing, when, I'm, when I disagree with the textbook, I'm always right. <laughs> axiom of the course. Supply is vertical. In other words, supply of everything is how much there's around right now. How many blows of Wonder better around at the stores today? Let's say 100,000. So you have, in other words, at any given time, the supply has a fixed amount. It ch changes over time. Sure, they produce more next week or something, or less. But the point is, at any given time, and this, and the demand curve after all is a freeze frame situation. How much at any given time, what, how much will be purchased at any given price by consumers? Similarly, the supply curve should be a fixed freeze frame. At any given day, how much is out, out there? <clears throat> so the supply curve is vertical. Right? And the, um, 
Right now, by the way, by knowing about the falling of Magdeburg, you right now know more economics than most of the people in the country. You're already, already, after one week, less than a week, you're already very savvy. You know more than the jerks who run the subway system, for example. I'll tell you that right now. The, the, uh, the way most people run utilities, particularly subways, railroads, whatever, uh, they assume that the demand curve is vertical. The implicit is that they don't think about the demand curve, but they implicitly assume the demand curve is vertical. Huh? And um, which means that people will, uh, people will apparently will essentially kick in the, the buy the same amount of stuff regardless of what the price is. There's no falling the macro. There's no there's no problem about the macro going that way. <clears throat> so, for example, every every year or so, they they keep raising a subway fare, and because they got a deficit, of course they have a deficit. Government always has a deficit. It's almost by definition, government's always screwed up. Okay, but anyway, they got a deficit. How do we cure that? How do we raise the fare? Why not? You have a, if, you have a, if you're suffering from a, a certain deficit, you figure out, you can, you can balance the budget. If you take in whatever, if you raise the price by 20% and you keep the same number of fares, uh-huh, then you'll balance the budget. So they raise the price by 20%, and by God, next year they find out there's a falling off of number of, of, of rides, of fares. So the deficit never, never gets cured. And there's always, they always startle of this. How come we didn't, why did the number of fares go down? Why aren't people riding the subway as much as they used to? Gee, I don't know, maybe it's because it's crummy, but it's always crummy. That's not the answer, <laughs> it's because the fare went up, <laughs> okay? And it takes, it's a, it's a long time before it sinks into these jerks. It still, still really hasn't. My prediction is that some fine day in the future, it's not gonna be too long from now, they keep, see what happened was, <laughs> on the fare caper, <clears throat> is that, they built, they first built the subways around 1900, 1904. And the fare was then a nickel. Well, a nickel was a lot then, right? So, uh, prices were low, and a nickel, you could, for a nickel, you could buy a good lunch or something. Apple lunch, right? So, uh, but the fare remained a nickel. It was regulated by the government, naturally, the New York City government. They kept the fare, they froze the fare to nickel from then on until about 1950. For 50 years, the fare was frozen to nickel. Naturally, the firms began to lose a lot of money with inflation. Costs are going up. You can only charge a nickel, and so the subways began to go bankrupt. At that point, <clears throat> the city government made a deal with the owners of the subway, the stockholders of the IRT and BMT, which were, the, were privately owned. Was the Eighth Avenue subway came in later, in the 1830s, as a, as a government subway. So they made a deal. They bought the subway from the stockholders at a very high subsidy. In other words, subways were quasi bankrupt. They really weren't worth, worth much. So they made a deal with the stockholders. They would, they, I don't know, 50% bonus. The stockholders loved it. They liked. You have to realize about businessmen, they don't mind being nationalized or statized if they make money out of it. Okay, so these guys were coining it. Not only that, they got paid off in government and New York City transit bonds. And they, then they created this, this transit authority situation, a real racket if there ever was one. And the transit authority, they get, the bondholders keep getting off the money off the top. In other words, before they pay off anybody else, on the subway system, they pay the bondholders. The bondholders are usually the former stockholders, and their bonds get refinanced every few years at a higher interest rate. Because in the old days, the interest rate was much lower. So they, they, they originally got bonds at 3%, which was a handsome subsidy then, and now getting 10% or something. And they're, they're living off us, basically. I mean, the, 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 bond, the bondholders. <clears throat> okay. At any rate, <clears throat> the... Um, so, so some fine day in the future, it's not going to be too long from now, they're going to raise the fare again sometime. The five bucks, whatever it is, right? And they're going to find out not only the number of rides are going, but the total revenue is going down. That's what they're going to find out. They're going to get up here somewhere <laughs> and find out they're taking in less money than they did before. What are they going to do then? Who knows? They'll cut their throat, perhaps. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> they, they, they haven't even got the mindset of lowering the fare to try to get a lot of people. They might even privatize it. That, that would help. But that's, uh, that's, I, that's, a, that's the objective. And you heard it here first. And five years from now, you're Looking at the newspaper, and the fare goes up to five bucks, and they find out they lose money on it. Right? You know, you heard it here first. Okay, so this is the uh, this is, say, the general mindset of uh, of most people, authorities, and whatever in the fare setting business. <clears throat> um, okay, this is uh, here. You have a law of demand, <clears throat> and. Uh, So the property of, um, as, you can, as you can see, it makes a big difference to businessmen what happens to total revenue. Because we know now, 
It's not necessarily, it's not going to be the same. It can change. What happens until revenue becomes the key thing, because businesses are trying to make profits and avoid losses. Um, total revenue, okay, price times quantity is total revenue. And total revenue minus total cost, which we'll get to later on in the course, will give you the profit or loss. In other words, if this is positive, if the total revenue is $100,000, that means you take in $100,000, and you pay out $80,000, then your, your profit's $20,000, right? It's a plus. If, on the other hand, your total revenue is $100,000, you paid out $120,000, then you're in bad shape, and you, you have a loss of $20,000. Okay? So you have to do something fairly rapidly to get out of this. So this is... So, other, so businesses are extremely interested in total revenue, which I say we're now concentrating on. We'll get later in the term of the cost question. <clears throat> and, um, and so this becomes very important. And what happens if, if uh, the, the price changes, say it's raised, whatever the, price, whatever the thing is, whatever the good is, you raise the price from here to here, what happens to total revenue? Okay. Um, We now have, we now come to the most important property of the demand curve, which is, uh, which is the reaction to, uh, on the demand curve. As you change the price, what happens to total revenue? In other words, what does, how does quantity react compared to, compared to price? This is the end of this hour. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to do our, since I couldn't, we didn't have more chairs than number of people, uh, more, more people in chairs. We're just about even. As a sort of a modified protest, I will cancel the second hour. And hope the next Thursday we'll have a decent room. See, the Tuesday room isn't so bad. The Thursday room, although I'm trying to change that too. The Thursday room is abominable. Okay, so I'm going to cancel an hour or two. And you've got the, uh, you've got the syllabus and uh, got the readings, etc. That's it.